James chapter 2. <clears throat> and we're going to wrap this chapter up this morning. The word bona fide, it's a Latin uh, word, and it means in good faith. Right? We've all uh, we, we've heard about a bona fide offer. This is an offer made in good faith and seriousness. And it signifies, what it really means is the absence of insincerity or the absence of an ulterior motive. Um, it can be trusted at face value. We can, we can take it for what it means. It's, uh, it would be the real deal, right? That's what bona fide means. We, we live in a world where you can go on Amazon or nearly any website and you can find non-bona fide products, right? They're knockoffs. It looks just like this other thing. And it might even be made by the same people in the same factory, but it is not the genuine article. It's not a bona fide whatever it may be. And we do it for all kinds of reasons because obviously they're usually cheaper. Uh, the, but, but maybe the quality is not there. Non-bona fide products look the same, uh, but they're just not the real deal. And usually you can tell by the way they are that they aren't. The stitching will be just a little off. The quality control just isn't quite there. It's just not the same thing. And this morning, what we want to talk about, what James is talking about in the rest of this chapter is bona fide faith. The genuine article, the real deal, not a knockoff. And you can tell by the way it is, right? There, that's a phrase, and it's a funny phrase, and there's a video on YouTube, and I don't even know the guy's YouTube channel, but he's out in nature, and he, he encounters an aspen tree, and he says, this is an aspen tree. You can tell by the way it is, and so I, I laugh every time I hear it because it's so funny, but I digress. Okay, you can tell by the way that it is. And what I, what I want to make very plain this morning is that, first of all, when we read through James chapter 2, and we, we immediately think about works, because there's a lot of discussion there about that. Well, James isn't talking about works. That is not the thrust. That is not the main point of this chapter. Ultimately, it has very little to do with works. It has everything to do with faith. What James is discussing is faith. And we have to understand it in that context. We have to understand it correctly or we'll miss the point. I want to just hit a few verses really quickly. We're going to come back to some of these, but look with me in verse 17 of James chapter 2. He says, even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. The emphasis, what he's discussing, the important thing in that statement is faith, not works. In the next verse, verse 18, yea, man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith. What is he showing? Not his works. He's going to show his faith by his works. Verse 20, but wilt thou know, O man, that faith 
without works is dead. Verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. James is not discussing works. James is confirming faith. He's taking the opportunity to look at the bona fide thing, the, the genuine article, and see the characteristics of it. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2 for just a moment. Galatians chapter 2. We need to lay some foundation here. Because there are those who will wrongly take what James says and they'll apply it incorrectly in such a way that we have a works-based salvation, which is nowhere taught in Scripture, even in James. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And I'll just, in an effort to help clarify, right, that it isn't just works of the law, it's any righteous acts. Anything that we would esteem to be righteous and good that would somehow merit favor with God. Here he's speaking to a specific audience that has fallen under bondage into legalism in Galatians, but ultimately, all of our works, as we read in the book of Isaiah, are as filthy rags. They're not something that adds up or merits favor with God. They're those things that are discarded. So when we look at what is being discussed here in Galatians, it's more than just works of the law. It's those things that we would esteem to be pleasing to him. And specifically with the idea that I can somehow merit favor, that I could redeem myself through proper living. Turns me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So Paul here doesn't limit it specifically to those to, to works of the law. He, he opens it up and he, and he clarifies that category. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And here he's speaking about in regard to our salvation, how we earn relationship with God, which it has nothing to do with, with what we're, our works of righteousness. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. We could look at a plethora of passages from the Old and the New Testament to discuss faith, and we're going to look at some of those as we progress this morning, and faith being the sole and only means of salvation, faith specifically in Jesus Christ. As many as believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. We have this very clear teaching from Genesis to Revelation, this looking forward to, and even this looking back on the finished and fulfilled work of Jesus Christ in purchasing the salvation that we enjoy by faith. So this is all about faith. James chapter 2 is all about faith. 
And I want to make a distinction if I can, if I can do so, because I think James is making a similar distinction. He's making a, a line in the sand and a distinction between saving faith, the bona fide, genuine article, and that which is simply professed, right? Your knockoff, the Amazon faith, what, what I went online and found. And it looks a lot like this other one, but one saves and one doesn't. One is genuine. One has fruit and characteristics. You can tell by the way that it is. Let's look at verses 14 through 16 in James chapter 2. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? So immediately we hear that, and it should, in our hearts and minds, bring us to attention. Can his faith save him? He continues on. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? What does it profit? Now, there's a couple of words. We're going to learn some words this morning. We're going to talk about the first word is minutia. That's the tiny little details, the minutiae, right? We're making a distinction. We're drawing a line in the sand, and we're, we're comparing two kinds of faith. And it's in the details that we find the reality, in the minutiae. So keep that word in mind. Another word, and the second word is spurious, S-P-U-R-I-O-U-S, spurious. I probably spelled that wrong. <laughs> but it means fake. We have those who are who, who are pew warmers. They're Sunday Christians. They're within the church. They soothe their conscience by coming to church. They they do the right things. They have these these acts of righteousness that they are somehow making themselves feel better with, whether it's simply going to church, I'm going to read my Bible. They're doing good things, but ultimately their faith is spurious. It's, it's not the genuine article. It's not bona fide. And that's what he's talking about here. Right here you have maybe, and remember, this is the audience. If we go all the way back to James chapter 1, he's speaking to Jewish believers. This is directed to the church. This isn't directed to, to unbelievers. This is specifically for the church. And so we need to be realized that there are going to be those amongst us who, who profess faith, but there isn't a saving faith there. That there are those who, who are warming the pews, they're, they're soothing their conscience, whatever it may be, but it's spurious, it's not bona fide. And here he gives an example, right? Here you see your brother and sister in need. You see them destitute of those things that they absolutely have to have. And one of, the, one of you say to them, depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, right? Listen, I'll pray for you. I'll, I'll be keeping that in mind. I'll, you know, whatever the, whatever the fill-in may be, and the fill-in is standing in for the action of faith that would say, I trust the Lord enough that I'm going to provide that need as, as, as here it is. 
We see them destitute of their daily food. They don't have those things that are needful to the body. And, and he asked the question at the end of verse 16, what does it profit? Well, it didn't do them any good necessarily. Now, the, not to discount the power of prayer, James is addressing something specific here. But we consider the audience, right? We, we look at what's happening. This is specifically to the church. What is the action of our faith? What is the fruit of the profession that we've made? Is the life that we lead consistent with the faith that we hold in Jesus Christ? And that's going to be a question that we want to mull over. That's something we want to consider. We're going to, we're going to close with that kind of an exploration on that thought. Look with me in verse 19 for just a moment. In verse 19, James says, Thou believest there is one God. And just pause there. Okay? Thou believest there is one God. These are Jewish believers in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Right? This is the, the, the Shema, the Lord our God is one God. This is, they, they know this. This is something that they are completely rooted in and have been since childhood. Right? Genesis, excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, that's that when they rise up, when they lay down, they we're teaching them the things of God. But first and foremost, the Lord our God is one Lord. They know this. He's confirming that, and he says, listen, that is right and true, but he continues on. And he says this, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Do you realize that a belief in God alone, that knowing that he exists and acknowledging that, is equal to the faith of demons? It may not save you. That makes sense? That there is a professed faith, there is an acknowledgement of the existence of God, of even his son, Jesus Christ, but it may not bring about a saving faith. It's what happens with, with the, the, the devil. In Matthew chapter 8, right, you have uh, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 8, 28 through 32, you have uh, Jesus and he encounters the, the demoniac. They're in, in the gatherings, uh, and he casts the devils out, right? And, and as he's doing so, they beg him. There's an acknowledgement. They know exactly who he is. They know that he is Jesus Christ. They know that he's the son of the living God. They know exactly what he's there to do. And they beg him, and he allows it. To be cast in, to, if we're going to cast us out, cast us into the herd of pigs, right? And that's, they all run off the cliff. There's an acknowledgement. There is a, a, a level of faith in the existence and, 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 and the person of Jesus Christ, but it falls short of salvation. And I couldn't define for you where that transition happens. Couldn't, couldn't. Because only God knows the heart. I can't see into somebody's heart. But what I can see is what's on the outside. And it's the same thing that you can see of me. Is our faith superior to that of demons? Or is it something that is equal to or less than? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's talk about this faith that, that is a saving kind of faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to look at verse 17, which we should all know. It was a memory verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ. Right, you are a born-again believer. There, there, there's about to be a description of something that would be true of all believers. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So we, outside of Christ, we exist this way. And then when we are brought into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again. Right? That's what Jesus, that's the term that Jesus uses in John chapter 3. We are new creatures in Christ. And he says the old has passed away. That old nature that we, that old person that we were, and everything has been made new. There's a difference now, a distinction between who we are before and after faith. Before and after. There's a distinction. There should be characteristics. There should be fruit. There should be evidence of what has happened inside. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart has been completely changed, made new. There should be a different abundance. There should be something coming out of us that was not previously there. James chapter 2, again, verses 17 through 18. Even so, Faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. We're not talking about works for the sake of works. We're talking about faith. We're talking about being this new creature and living a life that is consistent with it. Why? Because I trust the Lord. Why? Because it's a reciprocation of the love that He's shown me in His Son, Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which we could probably all quote. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And here, we could probably all even continue on, and we might even be able to quote verse 10. And I want to go there, and I want to, I want to read it because I don't want to get it wrong. For gr by grace are you saved through faith. Right? That is the mechanism of salvation, grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have a clear statement about how we are born again, how we enter the family of God, and it's by faith in Jesus Christ completely and wholly. But you see in verse 10, it does, we all stop at verse 9, but verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. For good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. And, and we've talked about this in the past, right? There's a specific and a general will of God for each one of us. There is a special commissioning, if I can use that term, for you and I as believers to be ambassadors, to be those who would walk in obedience, both specifically and to the general revealed will of God. But did you notice that, that the fruit of our salvation should be works? Should be a holy lifestyle that is consistent with the profession of faith that we have made, that, that should reflect what is on the inside as reality. 
on the outside. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, would you give your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. That is the fruit of the salvation that we receive. Why is it our reasonable service? Because of what Christ has done. The full forgiveness and the justification, the declaration of our righteousness. That's an act of faith to lay our lives down and say, listen, I'm going to live for you, Lord. And for the genuine believer, those who would have a saving faith, a bona fide faith, it is a non-negotiable. And when I say that, I say that it is a conscious choice, right? Jesus would say, take up your cross daily and follow me. And for you and I who are walking in, in faith, we, we, we are born again. Now, we're not going to do this perfectly. There are going to be days that we fail. There are going to be moments in our life where we don't want to be the living sacrifice and we choose not to be. Fully acknowledge that. There's an entire book, excuse me, chapter in Romans where Paul addresses that. And it's not a loss of salvation. It isn't anything like that. But it's an act of faithlessness, if I can just phrase it that way. But the general characteristic for believers, those who have a sincere and saving faith, would be to walk in obedience, to lay our lives down, no matter what the cost may be, knowing that it's going to cost something. Maybe it's rejection by those that we work with or family and friends. Maybe it's mockery or sport. Maybe it's loss of business. Maybe it's a complete change. I have to give everything up so that I may pursue the calling that God has put in my life. Whatever it may be, we beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to give your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. There's going to be a different action associated with sincere and genuine bona fide faith as opposed to those have a counterfeit, spurious faith. To stick with the example that James used, turn with me to 1 John for just a moment. James, Peter, John, 1 John, chapter 3. Here it is. We've seen the people that come in, they have, they have absolute need. They don't have food. They don't, the stuff for life is missing. And we have the option. We may just... Well, I'm going to pray for you, right? A genuine faith would react differently. First John chapter 3, let's look at verses 16 through 19. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now just pause there for a moment. This is how we know that God loved us, that he was willing to give his only son on our behalf. Romans 5, 8, here in First uh, John 3, 16. We perceive, we understand, we know the love of God because he would give his life for us. So ought we to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? And that's a very pointed question, isn't it? 
Is it a genuine bona fide faith or is it a spurious faith? Is it something that is counterfeit only on in, in name only? If we're going to be that new creation, that new creature in Jesus Christ, there would be a different response than there would be previously. Whosoever has this world of goods and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion. But I could meet that need. I could, I could be the instrument of God to meet that need for somebody. And even if I can't, by faith, I can trust that God would provide my needs and I can still meet that need. Whatever the circumstance may be, how dwells the love of God in him? There's a question to be asked here of ourselves. Have I been there? Have I done that? And does the love of God dwell in me? He continues on, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, talk is cheap. It's about the action. It's about the evidence. It's about the fruit of faith. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Hereby, this is how we know. This is an evidence of our genuine salvation, of genuine and sincere faith in Jesus Christ. This is the distinction between bona fide faith and counterfeit. Remember that the first half of James, what did we talk about? We talked about equal opportunity love. The way that we would engage with people around us, the choices and the considerations that we would make for people and for God. Hereby perceive we, this, this is how we know we're his. It's the evidence, it's the outward expression of the genuine faith that is within us. <clears throat> Back to James chapter 2 and verse 18. He says, Yea, a man may say that I have faith and I have works. That's what James says, well, I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. James isn't here talking about showing his works. He's talking about showing his faith, the evidence of what is inside is coming out. I want to look at two verses in Matthew. Turn with me first to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is here uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to the audience there. And in Matthew chapter 5, he's discussing about being salt and light. That we are the light of the world, and a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candlestick and put it under a bushel. No, but they, they light it so that it will give light to everyone. There's a purpose for you and I in Christ to be the light around. We can't hide. We are peculiar, and we should remain peculiar. We should stand out to those around us, the way we conduct ourselves, because we are new creatures in Christ. It's okay to be weird. And like the sign that we used to have, it's around the house somewhere, right? Stay weird. It's okay. That's peculiarity is part of the calling in Christ. But he says this in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is I will show you my faith 
by my works. Let them see your good works, and then they'll know about the faith that is in you. They'll know about the transformative power of Jesus Christ. The witness that is inside that I was this way, and now I'm this way. And you see the evidence of that through the change in life. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, and he's speaking about false prophets he's and false teachers, those who would creep in unawares, who would be sneaky, and he's looking at the characteristics there. But he says this in Matthew 7, 16, you shall know them by their fruits. And I think there is definite application to be made here in this particular context when we're talking about faith, because he, he goes on and he gives this explanation, you'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? No, right? That, that, I mean, that's the obvious answer. It's rhetorical. You gather the fruit that is associated with that particular plant. And so here, if we have a bona fide and genuine faith, there would be expected fruit. We should be able to look at it. You can tell by the way that it is, right? But here on the other side, there's different fruit. Not, not this side in particular, right? But on the other side of that, there's different fruit. You can tell by the way it is. Right? This guy that walks up to the aspen tree and he says, you can tell by the way it is. I mean, you can tell by the way it is. Here's the bark, here's the leaves. Here's, I mean, it's clearly an aspen tree. It has all the characteristics of an aspen tree. Here it is, somebody with genuine bona fide faith that has all the characteristics of genuine bona fide faith. Turn me to Colossians chapter 3 for just a moment. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Uh, I don't think that's the. Uh... Well, we'll have to skip that because I don't. I don't know what reference it is. <clears throat> Here's the thing, and this maybe this will sum it up for us, right? The, the the outward expression of our is the outward is the expression of our inward regeneration. When we talk about heroes of the faith, when we talk about the lives of the heroes of the faith, like if you pick up a book on George Mueller, who, who is considered, I mean, by all accounts, right, here he is, he's a faithful man. He gets saved and he starts this orphanage, um, and he's so committed, so trusting of God that he, he's adamant that, right, we pray one time, he doesn't even share a prayer request because I've already prayed and I've already asked. And God will hear and answer. And I completely trust that that's exactly what's going to happen because God is faithful. But what we don't read about, what we don't hear, he, we have the, the statement, George Mueller was a man of faith. How do we describe that faith? We describe it by the actions, by the works, by the things that he did that exhibited that faith. 
When we look at Jim Elliott, who uh, ultimately died in the mission field trying to reach these native Indians, one of the statements that he clearly made, and he and his team, all of them that gave their lives, were very clear. They said, listen, if it becomes hostile, we're ready to meet the Lord, and they're not. We're not going to return fire. We're not going to defend ourselves in such a way that they would lose their lives because we know Christ and we understand that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's an act of faith. That's an act of genuine faith and, and, and standing firm upon the truths that here it is. I have been born again. I know that God is faithful and has saved me. Corey Tenboom. She and her sister and her father were hiding Jews during World War II, and they were caught. They ended up in an internment camp, and later in life, as she's speaking uh, and giving accounts of God's faithfulness and in their imprisonment, she encounters one of the very soldiers who had persecuted her, in one of the Nazi soldiers that had persecuted her in that prison. And she knows that I have to forgive him. And she talks about it. She says, it wasn't easy. It was hard, but she did. Why? Because she trusts the Lord. All of these being examples of faith, we don't just say, we talk about the fruits, the works that they have. We can tell they have a genuine and a bona fide faith because of the way that they behave themselves, because of the conduct, because of the things that they would do that would willingly sacrifice themselves so that others may be understanding of who God is that they may see his good works, that they may see and come to know him through the witness of their lives. This is what James is writing about. This is what he's trying to articulate for you and I, that we would understand that there is a difference. James gives two examples. He gives one example that his Jewish audience would identify and that we as believers should identify with. Let's look at the first example that James gives in verses 21 through 24 of James chapter 2. We read about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 4 for just a moment. He talks about justification, and, and we're going to come back to that word here in just a moment. But in Romans chapter 4, we have a further discussion of, of Abraham. We have a further discussion of his faith and his justification. Okay, Romans chapter 4, I mean, we're going to skip around. We've studied through this. We've looked at it, but we have to have this foundational understanding as we go forward. Just remember that James is not talking about works. James is discussing faith. That's what he's talking about. A bona fide faith. It would look different on the outside than an insincere, than a spurious counterfeit faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, was pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has wherefore to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Quoting from Genesis 15, 6. 
What was counted to Abraham as righteousness? What was the, the justification that he received? It wasn't associated with his works. It was clearly associated with his faith. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was indeed saved by faith. Now continue on. Uh, jump down to verses 9 and 10. Come with this blessedness of then upon this circumcision, or the only, or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Right? And all this discussion about circumcision is simply to say, and he goes on to explain this in the next few verses, that circumcision was the symbol of the imputed righteousness that he had received. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of works. You know, of faith, seal of the righteousness of faith. It became the symbol of the imputation of righteousness, the declaration, the justification of mankind, you and I included, by faith. Verses 20 through 25 here in Romans chapter 4, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that when he had promised he was able to perform and i want to pause there for just a moment cuz you think about abraham you examine his life and you look at abraham was a faithful man don't misunderstand he was faithful His faith was evident. We could see it. We can look throughout, but we also see some failures of faith. Right here we are, Abraham, Sarah, we're old. And God has promised a son. But we're well past the age of bearing children, and so we're going to come up with our own plan. And Abraham goes into Hagar, and she ends up having Ishmael, and God's very clear. Listen, Abraham, that's not the son of promise. Right? There were times when Abraham failed here twice when they go into these foreign lands and he's got this beautiful wife and he says, listen, don't tell him that you're my wife. Tell him you're my sister. Why? Because I'm fearful. I'm not trusting God that he'll watch over and protect me and accomplish the promises that he's made to you and I and all of mankind through us. Abraham had some struggles, but ultimately, he was considered to be faithful. He's the example used consistently throughout Scripture of righteousness being imputed or counted to us by faith alone. If you go read about Abraham in, in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, if you go read about Abraham, what you're going to find is that he left everything that he knew when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He left everything he knew, his family included. To go to a place that he had never been that God said, I'm going to give to you. And he lived as a nomad, having nothing intense in that land because God had promised it to him. And then he trusted God to bring this about the son of promise, even his old age. And, and it says that that was his, his trust. Now, there may have been some ups and downs and struggles of faith in the midst of all that, just like we're all going to experience. But ultimately, he trusted God. 
when he was commanded by God to take the son of promise, Isaac, the one that he had born in his old age miraculously, the one that God had said, I will bless all nations through your son, this son of promise. And he said, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to, to the mountain that I'm going to show you and I want you to offer him as an offering before me. Abraham took Isaac. They gathered up some wood and they took a couple of servants and some donkeys and they progressed their way to Mount Moriah. That God had told them, this is where I want you to do it. Abraham leaves the servants there. He and Isaac carry the fire and the wood up the hill. And as they're all on their way up there, God, excuse me, Isaac says, I see the fire and I see, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, in faith, says God will provide. And as you read through this story, right, they build the altar. He puts Isaac on the altar and he's about to plunge that. He was going to do it. Don't make any, I have no question. Abraham was going to do it. He was going to offer Isaac. And he stopped. God stops him. At the moment, he's going to plunge the knife in, and he says this of Abraham. He says, now, in Genesis chapter 22, you can read about it in verses 9 through 12. Now I know that you trust me. In other words, Abraham, the evidence of your faith and being willing to walk through and endure and even accomplish at your own hands the offering of your son whom you love is evidence of the faith that is in you. And so as James is discussing faith, as he's talking about it to this Jewish audience, these Jewish believers, he gives them the example of Abraham. He says, listen, our faith needs to be like Abraham's, who had a bona fide faith, so much so that it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified, right? And that word simply can mean, in this instance, the word justified means... <clears throat> that he was proven, that it was evidence for the exhibit of his righteousness by faith. It was what was on the outside. It was the fruits of what was in his heart. And it says of Abraham that, it, <clears throat> that his faith was made perfect. Now, we're perfect. It's, it's not the same uh, idea that we usually you, that we read about. It means complete and those kinds of things. Uh, it's similar, but what it but what it literally means is to come to to fruit or to come to blossom. Right, that here it is. The fruits are on the tree. We can clearly see this is an apple tree or a fig tree or an orange tree because it has the appropriate associated fruit. There's no question left in our minds. And that's what happened with Abraham. The action, the willingness, the, 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 the in faith moving forward in trust of what God has commanded and what he's promised was the fruit, the blossom of his faith. I can't tell flowers apart. I mean, they, there's a few that I can tell, but I'm not an expert. But once the flower's there, you know that it's a petunia or you know that it's a pansy or a geranium or 
whatever the flower may be. Now, God already knew Abraham's heart. There was no question. I mean, he knows everything. But here, so that it may be recorded for you and I, the difference and the, the, the categorical difference between a spurious counterfeit faith and a bona fide genuine saving faith, we have this example written and recorded and preserved. Here is the fruit. This is what's on the outside. This is what we can see. This is what we observe. This is the confirmation. The second example that we find in James chapter 2 is in verse 25. He says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she was received when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Now, this happens in Joshua chapter 2. Let's turn there for just a moment. Joshua chapter 2. One, one thing to be very uh, clear about here is that we have the example of Abraham. We also have the example of Rahab, who is not a Jew. She's not, she's not part of Israel. She's outside. And that's an important thing for us to understand because here is God giving this very clear example that isn't just for the Jews, but the same saving faith for Jew and Gentile has existed since forever. And Rahab, by her action of faith, trust in the Lord, by the outward fruit of what is inside is described not only here in Joshua chapter 2, but in excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. She's recorded there. And I want to look at in, in some of the things that Rahab says in Joshua chapter 2, because we hear that she, she shelters the spies and those kinds of things, but what is her reason for doing that? It's completely and wholly by the faith that she holds, which is an interesting thing because she's never heard the gospel. But what she does know is the faithfulness of God and his mighty power, his acts, and, and the way that his hand is upon the nation of Israel. So look with me in jo Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Here is Rahab, and she's speaking. Uh, actually, let's begin in verse uh, 9. She comes up to the roof, and she's visiting with these two spies that she's hid. And she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. There's an absolute surety. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. I mean, she's, she's relating some things that she's heard and right. everybody's terrified because here is Israel, God's people, and they're coming into the land. And, and most of the people that live there in Jericho are fearful. They're like the demons. We Yeah, God has given them this land. We're going to get destroyed. But it doesn't bring about sincerity and faith. It doesn't bring about a bona fide trust in God. But in Rahab, it does. For we have heard in verse 10, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And when you did uh, what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt because neither did they remain any more courage in any man because of you. And this is the why. For the Lord your God 
He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Listen, it's not because of you, Israel. It isn't because of, of you being a mighty people and, and having an advanced military technology and strategy and all of these. No, 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 no. We understand, or at least Rahab understands. It's because God is the God in heaven and on earth below. He is the true and living God. He is the one, and it is as a result of that faith that she would say, listen, if he is the God of heaven and earth, then, then he can save me. He can spare me. And you'll remember that as after she hid them, right? The, the spies told her, you put the scarlet thread in the window, we'll know. And, and ultimately, when you read about marching around Jericho here in a few chapters, what happens? The wall falls down, except the portion of the wall that Rahab lived in. And she's able to escape. The, the spies go in. They're sent in by Joshua. Listen, go get Rahab and get her family. Get him out of there. Her faith, the same faith that saved Abraham, has counted him as righteousness, justified him, made him as if he had never sinned by God's declaration. Is the same faith, the same justification that enacted in Rahab, Jew and Gentile. And I got news for you. Either a Jew or you're a Gentile. All people are saved by faith. All people have the same opportunity to exercise faith in Jesus Christ or not. And the distinction is this, is it a genuine, sincere faith or is it a counterfeit faith? Is it something that is culturally acceptable and somehow it works, right? I live in a little town and everybody's a Christian and so I'm going to be a Christian too. Or is it something that is radically changed who we are? Go back to James chapter 2 for just a moment. We're going to close with, with a couple of thoughts. He says in verse 26, the last verse, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You're, did you see that, right? This is all about faith. It's not about works. If there aren't works like Abraham willing to offer Isaac, like Rahab who would give everything up for the sake of these spies, knowing that God is God. If there isn't a radical shift in our paradigm in the way we think and understand as a result of the faith that we hold, your faith is dead. It never really lived. It wasn't that you had it and then it lost. It never took flight. It changes who we are. It changes the way we act. It changes how we conduct ourselves. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. I want to read verses 33 through 37. Jesus is here speaking and he's addressing, in many respects, he's addressing the faith of the Pharisees. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 33. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by the words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Jesus is addressing exactly the same thing that James is saying. And remember, they were brothers. <laughs> Can you imagine, right? Here is James. He's given, and I don't know if this happened, right? This is complete speculation. But here is James, and he's addressing sincere and genuine faith. Having grown up with Jesus Christ, and as we talked about, we introduced the book. He didn't become a believer till well on later. It wasn't something that he grew up like, I, boy, my brother is the son of God. I, you know, I got complete faith in him. No. James was one who lived with a counterfeit, a spurious faith, going through the motions, even doing those things that, that didn't amount to anything, his works of righteousness. And here is Jesus, his brother, telling us, listen, by what comes out, by the way that we live, by the fruits that we exhibit, will people know whether we're saved or not saved? Will people know whether we're justified or not justified? That we're saying that we have a bona fide faith or we have a counterfeit faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and I want to close with this. And I don't know, maybe it's not fair. Maybe it's not nice to close with this. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, As he's talking about and discussing love, <clears throat> it's it's not that verse. <laughs> it's not that verse. It is in Second Corinthians. Let me see if I've got it over here. Oh, I'm in 1 Corinthians. It probably is that verse. It probably is that verse. 2 Corinthians 13.5. This is, I, I tried so hard. He says, examine yourselves. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know, you, know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. We have this exhortation. We have this opportunity to say, listen, examine yourselves. Is the faith that I have a bona fide, sincere faith? Is the fruit of my life consistent with that profession? Is it rooted in, is, is the way that I live my life simply the fruit, the blossoming, the, the, the outward expression of the inward regeneration that God has accomplished in me through a sincere faith in his son? He says to examine yourselves, whether you're in the faith. There's an examination of fruit to take place. And not only that, he continues and he says, listen, know your own selves. Abraham didn't propose to offer Isaac. He didn't follow through with every step and detail that God had given him. 
because he had an impure motive, because he had some self-serving desire, because it was acceptable socially or whatever the case may be. He did it because he trusted the Lord, because he had a sincere faith. We may go through and we may do the right things. We may go to the church. We may, whatever the case may be, examine yourselves and see. What is the why? Is it to merit favor with God? Is it to earn and somehow be acceptable before him? Or is it a simple reciprocation? Is it the overflow of what he's already done? I don't know. All I can see is the fruit on the outside. But God knows. And as we examine ourselves, if we see where we're at, if we take that exhortation seriously, what is my fruit? What, what, is, what is, is my faith genuine or is it some counterfeit? If any of you lack wisdom, we read earlier in James, right? Let him ask of God. Is there any uncertainty? Is there any examination? I'm not saying that we should live so introspectively that, that we somehow miss what God is doing, but we also don't want to live so unaware that we miss what God is doing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be challenged by your word. Lord, and I pray for our, your grace that we might take seriously the exhortation of Scripture to see and examine the faith that we profess to have. Is it sincere? Is it something that, that Lord, would motivate us and that we would act upon out of love and in response to the justification, the declaration of being made righteous, of your love and mercy extended to us and your Son? Lord, is it simply, it was the thing to do at the time. Lord, I pray for everyone here that they would settle that question within themselves, first and foremost, by the leading and the guiding of your spirit and by the careful consideration of the fruits that they exhibit. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, for the clarity that your word and that your spirit can bring, and I pray that for everyone here. And God, I pray that we as a church would be known as those who have a sincere faith, Not, not something that, God, let us be those that are exhibiting good work so that everyone may know you. Let that be the reputation of our church. Let that be who we are for your glory and for your honor. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you put before us. Help us not to take those for granted. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, in your son's name. Jesus Christ, amen.